up to Romans chapter 11. <clears throat> Romans chapter 11. And as we continue working our way through this chapter, we're going to focus tonight on verses 11 and 12. Uh, verses 11 and 12. However, before we look at these verses, I need to explain the perspective from which I am coming as we study the rest of this chapter. Uh, as I've told you many times before, Romans 11 is seen by many as one of the most difficult and controversial chapters in the New Testament. I think it's a marvelous chapter. Let me just be clear about that. Um, once you do see and understand what Paul is teaching in these verses, the result should be verse 33. So do you see verse 33? Do you see the, the climax of the chapter? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. In other words, if we're following Paul's train of thought, and we are rightly understanding what he's saying in this chapter, it ought to lead us to cry out in worship and praise to God. When Romans 11 is understood, it is a chapter of wonder. There is amazement in these verses. And so I don't want you to approach this chapter as it's tough, it's controversial, people have different views on it. I want you to be saying, where's the glory? What was Paul saying here that caused him to love God more? And I want you to be looking for what Paul is saying here that should cause you to love God more and to be more astonished at His goodness and His grace. And my task as the preacher is to try and do my best to clear away what might be foggy for us so that you can see the glory of these verses. So without spending too much time uh, getting into all the different interpretations of this chapter, I want to boil the whole debate down into two fundamental views, okay? So two views of Romans 11. First, there is the majority view. The majority view of Romans 11 is that Paul teaches here an end-time mass conversion of ethnic Jews to Jesus Christ. Uh, there's the problem, why are the Jews not being saved in Paul's day? And Paul's trying to answer that question of why his fellow Jews are not coming to Christ. And some people say that one of Paul's main answers here in Romans 11 is that there will be a day, a future day, when ethnic Jews will be won by the gospel and they will flock in mass to Jesus Christ and be saved. Uh, remember, we've already seen in the opening verses of this chapter that God has brought a partial hardening upon the Jews. Uh, though there is a remnant being saved, the majority of Jews are hardened against the gospel. This majority view says that at the end of the age, that hardening will be lifted and a whole generation of Jews will come to Christ. Now, many of us in this room, whether we knew it or not, uh, grew up under dispensational teaching. 
And one part of dispensationalism is this idea that Jesus will return. He will rapture the church, taking all of the Christians who are alive on the earth immediately up to heaven with him. After Jesus takes his people up to heaven with him, there will be a seven-year tribulation where all sorts of terrible things happen on the earth. And then, just before Jesus returns a second time, that's when many dispensationalists believe thousands and thousands of ethnic Jews will find themselves converted and coming to Jesus Christ. They believe that when this mass of Jews come to Christ, Jesus will then return to earth and he will reign for a thousand years, for a millennium, on this earth, on this fallen earth. That he will reign from Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that we know today, that the temple will be rebuilt and that he will reign from that temple. And so that this mass conversion of the Jews leads up to that millennium. Um, That's the dispensational view. It was the predominant majority view uh, of the Bible for Americans for most of the 1900s. Um, It seems to be falling out of popularity today. I'll be honest, I say good riddance. Um, I think it's, it's not accurate, and frankly, I think parts of it is not just unbiblical, but dangerous. But there are others who hold to the majority view of Romans 11 who are not dispensational. That is, they're not saying that Jesus is going to come physically and reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. and They they don't necessarily hold to those things, but they do believe that just before Christ returns to bring about the end time, the end of the age, that there will be a great awakening among the Jews in Israel. And And that that's the teaching of this chapter. Very godly men, that I respect very much, hold that that's the teaching of this chapter. Uh, John Murray and Douglas Moo are probably the two most famous commentators in our day on the book of Romans, and both of them hold to that majority view. Uh, Matthew Henry, Charles Hodge, John Piper, who I quote all the time, these fellows all hold to that majority view. Then there's the minority view. (laughs) And this is, this is the view that I hold to. And just so you know, Pastor Merle holds to it too. So, so you don't think we're against each other, all of us. Um, this view says that Romans 11 is not about a future ingathering of Jews, but that it's about the Jews who are being brought to Christ right now. Throughout history, uh, from, from the time Paul wrote this until Jesus comes back. In other words, the focus of of the salvation of the Jews in this chapter is not about some one-day mass conversion. It's about the Jews that are being saved even in our day. Uh, We do not believe that Romans 11 says that God's hardening of the Jews will come to an end. Rather, we think God's hardening of the Jews will, will continue. But the emphasis of the chapter is that it's a partial hardening. And that God is bringing into his church the full number of the elect Jews. In other words, even though the majority of Jews will continue to disbelieve until the end of the age, in every generation, there are more Jews who have been chosen by God, who are being awakened and are coming to Christ. And what's so amazing that Paul teaches here in Romans 11 is that God is using the Great Commission 
and the gospel going to the Gentiles to bring Jews to salvation. Um, as crazy as it sounds, it is the gospel going to the nations. It is the gospel going to the non-Jewish peoples of the world that God is using to open the eyes of some Jews and bring them to salvation. It is through the gospel going to non-Jews that all of God's chosen Jews will come to Christ and be saved. And Paul will explain that in these verses, and that's where the glory is, and so I want to help you see that. Um, the minority view is held by folks like Herman Ritterboss, uh, Robert Strimple, Palmer Robertson, Anthony Hokema, and William Hendrickson. Now, let me be clear about this up front. This is not an issue that should ever divide Christians relationally. Um, if you come out of our study of Romans 11 and you decide you hold the majority view, uh, that one day there's going to be a future mass gathering of Israel, that is okay. <laughs> okay, uh, that we, We're not going to remove you from the church because you happen to hold to a different view of Romans 11. This is not a gospel issue. Uh, our salvation does not hinge of how we interpret Romans 11. Uh, certainly God's plans for ethnic Israel are not included in our statement of faith uh, that we read together on Sunday mornings. But I do pray that as we study the rest of this chapter, I hope you will feel its humbling effect. It does have a great humbling effect when it's well understood. And I hope you will hear its call to treat others with love because that runs all through this chapter. And I hope that you will come away with greater awe towards God. Now, because my understanding of this chapter is going to shape how I preach through the rest of these verses, I do want to give you tonight uh, the reasons for why I hold the view I do. So I want to give you some grounds, a foundation for why I'm interpreting this chapter the way that I am. So what I'm going to give you now are six arguments for the minority view of Romans 11, the view that says Paul's not talking about a future mass conversion of the Jews. He's talking about uh, a remnant of Jews continuing to be brought into the church of Christ in every generation. Uh, so we're going to do that, and then we'll spend our last few minutes looking at verses 11 and 12. All right, are you with me? You ready? Okay, I see the excitement. Here we go. <laughs> Number one, um, I favor the minority view because the focus of this chapter is on Paul's present, not the future. The focus of this chapter is on Paul's present and not the future. A lot of people uh, come to Romans 11 and they immediately assume, they immediately read into the text that Paul's focus here is on future Israel. But when you read the chapter in context, and when you listen to what Paul is actually saying, the focus isn't mainly on the future at all. In these verses, Paul is addressing a church of real Christians living in Rome in the first century. And this chapter is addressing issues related to the lives of those Christians in Rome right there and then. Uh, it's addressing issues that are directly related to their lives and to Paul's life. Look at verse 1 of Romans 11 again. Verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, 
a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So so Paul's concern in this chapter, just as it's been in chapter 9 and chapter 10, is God's faithfulness. God made promises to Abraham about Abraham's descendants. He made a promise that Abraham's descendants would be God's people. But now Abraham's physical descendants are rejecting Jesus Christ and are proving themselves not to be God's people. What does that mean? Has God rejected his people? Has God turned his back on them? Has God decided that his promises to Abraham are null and void? It certainly kind of looks that way. Now, if Paul is going to teach, actually, no. There's going to be a massive influx of Jews to Jesus Christ in the future. That would have been a great time to mention it. Right after verse 1. What is the evidence that God hasn't rejected his people? Because in the future, there's going to be a massive conversion of the physical descendants of Abraham. But that's not what Paul does. That's not how he answers the question. Instead, he points to himself right there, right then in the present. He says, I am living proof that there are physical descendants of Abraham who are truly God's people. And then, as we've already seen in our past sermons, he points to the principle that God always has a remnant. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So Paul is saying to these Roman Christians that even in their day, there are Jews chosen by God who are believing or will believe in Jesus and that these rem- this remnant of Jews is proof that God has not rejected ethnic Israel and he's not rejected his promises to Abraham. So far in Romans 11, the focus is still on Paul's present day. Look at verses 13 through 15. Verses 13 through 15. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So here is the argument that Paul was going to make. He is going to argue that the gospel going to the Gentiles is actually leading Jews to be jealous. That for some Jews, they become jealous because Jesus is their Messiah. Jesus is a Jew like them. Jesus is the one promised in the Jewish scriptures. He was predicted by the Jewish prophets. He is foreshadowed in the Jewish rituals. And as these Jews see the Gentiles embracing him, see the the Gentiles loving Jesus, they're going to become overcome by a holy jealousy that leads them to embrace Christ. But note carefully, when does Paul say this is going to happen? The majority view says this is going to happen just before the return of Christ. They they say that the Gentile nations will all be reached first. And then once all the Gentile nations have, have been reached, at the very end, then at the very end, there's going to be this massive ingathering of Jews who've become jealous and turned to Jesus Christ. But do we read anything in those verses about the future? No. Paul says that he is the apostle to the Gentiles 
And he is magnifying his ministry to the Gentiles in order to somehow make his fellow Jews jealous and save some of them. In other words, he's thinking about the present tense. He's thinking about his ministry right then and there. He says that at that very day, he is doing all he can to reach some of his fellow Jews for Christ by reaching Gentiles for Christ. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, and as he's taking the gospel to the Gentiles, he's praying that God's going to use his ministry to the Gentiles to bring about the salvation of some of his fellow Jews. Look at verses 30 and 31. 30 and 31. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may, what's the word? Now receive mercy. I think that's pretty clear. Paul isn't looking eschatologically out into to the end times. He's talking about real life, present tense. The Jews may receive mercy now through the mercy that's being given to the Gentiles now. Now, it's okay if you're confused because we're going to have several weeks of working through the glorious truths that are all in this text. I'm just giving you the big picture of why I approach these verses the way I do. So second, I favor the minority view because a central practical concern of chapter 11 seems to be present relationships with unbelieving Jews. In other words, this this passage isn't meant to be a theological treatise that scholars in their ivory towers talk about as though it's all abstract and doesn't have anything to do with real life. No. Romans 11 was meant to be practically helpful to the Christians in Rome. Remember their history. The church in Rome began by mostly Jews. Uh, It was Jews who probably were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They had heard Peter preach that sermon at Pentecost. They believed and were saved. And then uh, the passage that Ronnie read this morning, uh, they were part of that early church. And then after they had taken some time and grown, they returned back to their home in Rome. And so the church in Rome was founded mostly by Jews. But then there was a crackdown against the Jews in Rome. And many of them had to leave. Uh, The emperor expelled the Jews from Rome. Uh, If you remember Aquila and Priscilla, they were part of this. Claudius did this. He, He expelled the Jews from Rome. And so while they were gone, the church remained, but it was just a few Gentiles. And then it was more Gentiles. And then it was more Gentiles. And it was more Gentiles. And by the time that the Jewish Christians were allowed to come back to the church in Rome, now they were the minority. It was a largely uh, Gentile church with a few Jews in that church. This led to some significant difficulties that Paul was addressing all through the book of Romans about how these Christian Gentiles and Christian Jews are to relate to one another in this church. But there was another issue besides how the Christian Jews and the Christian Gentiles should relate to each other in the church. There was also the question of, How should they relate to those Jews who did not believe? How should Christians relate to Jews in general? After all, the Old Testament prophets, Jesus, his apostles, they all declared that God's judgment is upon Israel because they rejected their Messiah. 
So should Christians hate the Jews? Are Christians to see the Jews as the most despicable people on earth, as some have in the past? After all, these are the people that shouted crucify him. These are the people that put the Lord of glory on a cross. Mount Hermon, anti-Semitism isn't a new thing. Uh, Teenagers, kids, anti-Semitism is hatred towards the Jews. It's it's being prejudiced uh, towards towards the Jews. Um, The Jews are a Semitic people. They descended from Noah's son Shem, right? So Shem's children, Semitic. Do you hear that? Shem, Semitic, right? Uh, That's why we call them Semitic people. So anti-Semitism is this prejudice or this hatred towards the Jews. And and we see it show up again and again and again in the pages of history. Uh, Tragically, there has been a temptation towards anti-Semitism among Christians all the way since the first century. And Paul's concern in this passage is to teach that even though God's judgment has come upon the Jews, we are not to treat them wickedly. In particular, he warns us not to be arrogant towards the Jews. Look at verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root but the root that supports you. Uh, We'll see later as we get into those verses that the broken branches are unbelieving Jews. They are those Jews that have been hardened by God. You and I, as Gentiles, we are the wild olive shoots that have been grafted into the tree of God's people. And how does Paul say that we are to relate to these unbelieving Jews? We are not to be arrogant towards them. And one of the reasons that Paul goes on to give us for why we should not be arrogant towards them is that God can bring those broken branches back onto the tree. In other words, hardened Jews can be brought to turn from their hardness of heart and be saved. There is a remnant who will be saved. The Jew you are hating today might just become your brother tomorrow. And it is after teaching this down in verses 23 and 24 that Paul goes straight into revealing what was once a mystery. Namely, that through the mission to the Gentiles, all of the true Israel within ethnic Israel will be saved. There are broken branches that will be grafted back in. So don't Be foolish, Roman Christians, and boast that you are saved while your Jewish friend is hardened because he might be saved tomorrow. He might be part of that remnant. The hardening is only partial. And your pride against him may prove you to be the lost one. All of that is verses 17 through 26. And it's a a call to humility. It's a rejection of anti-Semitism. And we will see that uh, in just a few weeks. Well, the third reason that I favor the minority view is that verse 10 teaches that the curse upon Israel is never-ending. It is a forever curse. Remember what Paul does in verses 9 and 10 of Romans 9 is quote 
from Psalm 69. He quotes from this messianic psalm. And in these verses, the Messiah is pronouncing a curse on those who have rejected him. And Paul says that this curse prophesied in Psalm 69 is the hardening that has now come upon the Jewish people. And in verse 10 of Romans 9, from that passage in Psalm 69, we read, Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Forever. And so the majority view that holds that this curse is going to come to an end that the hardening is going to be taken away and suddenly this mass conversion of the Jews is going to take place, I, I don't see how that view can stand against Paul's Old Testament support here, which says that the curse is going to be forever. The fourth reason that I favor the minority view is that I think part of the great mystery being revealed in verse 25 is not that Israel is being hardened, but that it is a partial hardening. In other words, there is nothing surprising about the fact that Israel is being hardened. As Paul has just shown us in verses 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, this was prophesied in the Old Testament. And Jesus himself taught this truth in the Gospels. Frankly, when you consider how much the Father loves the Son, and that the Jews rejected the most precious person in the universe, common sense would say that we should expect for God's judgment on Israel to be severe. But I think the mystery is this. It's not as severe as you might think. That God in his mercy and kindness has chosen for his judgment on Israel to be a partial judgment. An incomplete judgment. A, a judgment that doesn't reach to every Jew. But rather, there is a remnant. And that as the gospel is going to the Gentiles, this remnant of Jews will be coming into the kingdom of Christ. And finding salvation in Jesus. So look at verse 25. See what Paul says there. He says, I'm going to reveal to you a mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. And most hear that and think that the emphasis is on the word hardening. I'm going to reveal to you a mystery. A hardening is coming upon Israel. Partial just happens to be that adjective, right? That's describing the hardening. It's a partial hardening. But the Greek seems to place the focus on the word partial. It actually comes after the word hardening in the Greek. It's, I'm going to reveal to you a mystery. Here it is, a hardening in part has come upon Israel. In other words, it is just as likely, I would suggest more likely, that the emphasis is on the fact that the hardening is not a full hardening. That God has left room for Jews to be saved even now while the Jewish people are under God's curse. And that fits so well with everything Paul has just said before verse 25 in the context. 
Well, fifth, I favor the minority view because it does justice to the words, all Israel, in verse 26. And I think it's more glorious than the majority view. So look at verse 26. Uh, There, Paul says that in this way, all Israel will be saved. The majority view takes that to mean that in this way, that is through the lifting of the curse and a great awakening at the end, all ethnic Jews, meaning either a great majority or every single one of them, on the last day will come to Christ and be saved. So in this way, lifting of the curse, great awakening, all Israel will be saved. The minority view says that all Israel here means every single believing Jew from the first century until the day Jesus comes back. That rather than reading into this text the idea of some eschatological future, Paul was talking about his day and our day and every day until the end. Some take this term all Israel to mean all saved Jews plus Gentiles because we as Gentile believers are made children of Abraham by faith. But either way, it's a much grander picture of God's saving mercy. It's a grander picture of his compassion on the nation who killed his son despite the centuries of special privileges that he had given them. I think it's this reality that God has not poured out the full measure of judgment that he could have upon Israel, but has held back his hand and has allowed even today a remnant of his people to be coming into the kingdom of God. I think that's what leads to the awe and the wonder of verse 33. Well, finally, sixth, I favor the minority view because it's confirmed by verses 26 and 27. It's confirmed there. Look at at those verses. Um, Paul has just said, in this way all Israel will be saved. And now he quotes from the Old Testament, verses 26 and 27. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So this quote from Isaiah is about a deliverer. A deliverer who will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is another name for Israel, the Jewish people. And the deliverer will cleanse them. He will banish ungodliness from them. And Paul uses this text to support his truth that all Israel will be saved. When is this going to happen? When are the Jewish people Uh, as well as Gentiles, but when are the Jewish people going to be delivered and their sins taken away? Well, the passage he quotes says it's going to happen when a covenant is established. A new covenant. Dear friends, is that something that we're still waiting for? Are we still waiting for the establishing of a new covenant? Not at all. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember that the new covenant has been established in Christ's blood. This quote from Isaiah says it would be at that time when when Christ came and died on the cross. Then he would come and take away the sins of Jacob and banish ungodliness from them. 
So Paul quotes this as proof of what he has just said, namely that God will continue to harden partially the Jews. But at the same time, there are Jews that he is saving. He is bringing into the new covenant, even today, as the gospel is going to the Gentiles. Gentiles are being saved today. And through our mission to the Gentiles, Jews are being saved today. And it's all culminating in the church of Christ being built. And when it is fully built, Christ will return. So there is my understanding of Romans 11. Well, now with the time we have left, let's look together at Romans 11 verses 11 and 12. Now let's focus on these two verses, 11 and 12. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So look at that opening question. He's talking about ethnic Israel who has rejected their Messiah and are rejecting the gospel. They are stumbling over Christ. And his question is, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Did they stumble for the purpose of falling? To ask it differently, was God's intention in Israel's disobedience for that nation to be utterly lost and ruined? And the answer is by no means. Rather, through Israel's disobedience, Salvation is now going to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous, right? Through their trespass, that is the trespass of rejecting Jesus, the trespass of uh, running the apostles out of Jerusalem, the trespass of stoning Stephen, through the trespass of rejecting the gospel, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Do you see that in the verse? So as to make Israel Jealous. So how did the Jewish rejection lead to salvation coming to the Gentiles? Well, first, it was Jewish rejection of Jesus that put him on the cross, accomplishing salvation for all God's people. But second, it was the Jewish rejection of the gospel that led to the Christians in Jerusalem having to scatter to other lands. Remember Jesus had told them to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation and yet here they were in Jerusalem and they were staying in Jerusalem and they were staying in Jerusalem. They overstayed their time in Jerusalem. And so Christ purposed that in the hostility of the Jews towards the gospel, he would send his disciples out into the world. He would get them moving through persecution. Persecution from Jews led Christians out of Jewish lands and into Gentile lands with the gospel. Paul says this was in order to make Israel jealous. He doesn't mean everyone in Israel. He means that there are Jews chosen by God, a remnant. 
And that these are the ones who will see their Messiah being embraced by others and by the power of God, they will be provoked with a holy jealousy to desire this Jesus as well. If anyone should have the blessings of the Jewish Messiah, certainly it should be them. Uh, Throughout the centuries, there will be Jews who see the church of Christ growing and they will come to want him and they will come to believe on him. And by the way, note that Paul isn't just making this stuff up. He's not just pulling this idea out of thin air. Look back at Romans 10, near the end of Romans 10, verse 19. Paul has just quoted 32.21 from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32.21. And do you see what that quotation says? This was back in the days of Moses. It says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. I find it simply astounding how the Holy Spirit gave Paul such an incredible understanding of the Old Testament and what it meant for his day and for ours. He sees in this text the the promise being fulfilled in his own day of Israel being made jealous of the church of those who were once not a nation being made a nation unto God. So what was God's purpose in Israel stumbling over Jesus? That he would use the Gentiles to bring the Jews to himself. Isn't this astounding? Paul has already hit on how salvation is for the Jew first, then for the Gentile. Remember that in Romans 1? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Salvation for us Gentiles comes from the Jews. The first missionaries were Jews. The prophets who gave us the scriptures were were Jews. It is through the Jews that Gentiles have come to salvation and now God has turned things on their head so that it is through the Gentiles taking the gospel to to Jews that modern Jews are being saved. So it used to be that Jews led Gentiles to Christ and that still happens occasionally, but mainly what's happening in our day is the Gentiles are winning Jews to Christ. Why? So that at the end... No one will be able to boast that they are a Jew or that they are a Gentile. In the wisdom of God, he has used both groups of people to help bring about the salvation of both groups of people and to unite us as one body and one bride for Jesus Christ. There will be no boasting. No boasting in Jewishness. No boasting in Gentileness. All boasting will be in the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, then Paul makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. This is verse 12. Do you see it? It's an argument of comparison. Uh, Here, our our English translations let us down. The ESV says, Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, but in the Greek it actually says, Now, if their trespass means the riches of the world, of the world. Um, we have some Latin scholars here. Uh, you guys know about genitives. 
The word world here is in the the genitive. It is of the world, not not for the world. And same thing in the next phrase. It should read, literally, if their failure means riches of the Gentiles. And when we get this right, we realize that Paul is actually taking this quote straight from the Greek translation of Isaiah 60, verse 11. This is a portion of Isaiah that he is going to quote again later in the chapter. And that verse is all about the wealth of the nations being brought in before King Jesus. Because Israel has sinned and rejected the gospel, the gospel has gone to the nations, the nations are being saved, and as they are, they are bringing their wealth into the kingdom of Christ. Look at our own nation. We wouldn't be sitting here tonight as believers in Jesus had Israel not rejected the gospel and sent those early Christians scattering with the gospel message. But now, not only are we here tonight, but there are millions of believers, Gentile believers, in this one nation. And our resources, the the wealth of American Christians, has now been brought in to the church of Christ, into the service of Christ, into the honoring of Christ. Look at this building that we're in right now. The cause of missions in our day is being funded by Gentile wealth. Think of that. Think of how preposterous that would have sounded in in the Old Testament days. The pagan Gentile nations suddenly bringing their wealth into the the service of the Jewish God in order to, to bring more people to worship Him. But that is the case today. Well, think about how rich and diverse and wonderful the church of Christ is because the Gentiles have been included. And yet in verse 12, that's the lesser thing. That's the lesser thing. That's what happened because the Jews rejected Jesus. But Paul says if the Jews' rejection of Jesus led to all that glory, just imagine what the acceptance of Jesus by the full number of God's chosen Jews will mean. In other words, think of the glory that has come because of the rejection of Jesus by the Jews in the first century. What's going to come after over the decades and centuries God has saved his full number of Jews? That all of God's saved, that all of God's chosen people from Jew and Gentile have come into the body of Christ. The full number is gathered in. What's going to happen next? It's going to be, oh, not the wealth of this world coming into the kingdom of Christ. It's going to be the glories of paradise itself. The new heavens and the new earth. When all of God's people have been saved, the full number of both Gentile and Jew, we will see God's people as he was always meant to be, glorified, perfected, beautiful, complete in every way. The full bride will be ready and the great wedding day will have come. So I close with this. Are you looking forward to that day? Are you looking forward to that moment When Christ has finished building his church and she is made ready for him. Do you long for Jesus to come back and to take you to himself? I hope you do. And if you do, then let us pray hard 
for the work of missions. Let us pray hard that God would speed forward His work of saving both Jew and Gentile, all His people from around the world. And let us rejoice at every sinner that comes to know His amazing grace. Amen? Let's pray.